So bro, do you even science? Bros do science. Hey guys, we're here in London for the Revive Stronger 2019 seminar. I've got Dr. Gabriel Fondaro with me. The pushing of supplements, especially probiotics. I'm not anti-probiotic, but people think that everyone has to be taking a probiotic, and there is not a kitchen sink probiotic that works for everything for every person. Dr. James Hoffman. Adrenal fatigue, I would like to see that go, and we had a great scientific article that said it doesn't exist, and it still is lingering around. And Dr. Mike Israel. The all or nothing mentality definitely has to go because uh, it just doesn't reflect what real life looks like and it just leads people down a lot of either not starting fitness at all because it seems overwhelming or starting fitness and burning out or dedicating way too much time to fitness where they could have had a really good time doing anything but. So we'll start ladies first if you can tell me something about yourself, personal. <laughs> Um, well, I guess we'll keep this rated PG. Uh, <laughs> um, so personal fun fact, I guess. Yes. Okay. Uh, personal fun fact, I guess, would be that I have three dogs and two cats. Um, but I do that ratio, so I'm not technically crazy cat lady. Like, I think f if it were all cats, it would be a problem. But because I have a mix, it's okay. Okay. Dr. Mike? So when you go to the... When you go to the vet with your two cats, you're like, I have more dogs at home, I swear. <laughs> They're like, okay, but you're still crazy. You're like, I know. <laughs> oh, fun fact, I'm a Virgo. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm actually a Gemini. <laughs> no, I said, Virgo's more fun, though. Everyone crazy is always a Virgo. You notice? Leo? Yeah. I'm not that fun. I have one cat, and he's gigantically fat, and uh, I get a lot of crap about it because we're supposed to be like health professionals, and people come over, and they're like, dude, what's with your fat cat? I'm like, he's bulking. life bulk, forever bulk. Okay. He looks like a manatee. <laughs> so we had a really interesting presentation about um, gut health, and if you can touch on it, because from what I uh, know, and I've been following you on Instagram, we're at Vitamin PhD. Um, you, I can say a behavioral scientist because you're talking about psychology and how that interferes with our diets, but also about gut health. And you touched on that about there's so many experts out there, but there's no substantial information and a lot of people are, are it's PG, right? They're screwing up with the information so they cannot um, tell the truth or they're selling a supplement. Yeah. Uh, what is gut health? That is such a good question, and it is one of the questions that I get probably um, most often, especially on podcasts and things like that. So we don't actually have a specific profile of gut health. That means that we don't know that, um, you know, if we were to look at a person's microbiome and all of the microbes there that we would be able to say, oh, this person has a healthy gut because these microbes are present and these are not, and they're there in a specific ratio. So gut health looks different depending on where you are in the world. Um, but some of the general trends of what we would consider to be healthy gut would be um, uh, just like we want an ecosystem to be diverse, that we have a diverse microbiome. So that means that we have a large number of species and we 
we have a favorable relative abundance of those species, so we have mostly good or neutral and fewer pathogens, and that um, the, the anatomical structures of our intestines are um, all present in the ways that they should be in terms of healthy intestinal cells and tight junction proteins holding them together. So we can uh, have a selectively permeable uh, uh, sort of structure there. Yeah, exactly. So it's age, it's location, and then it's diet and physical activity, correct? Yeah, yeah. It looks like the most the, the strongest influences on the shape of the microbiome or the organisms present there um, to look like they are, yeah, your age, your gender, your location in the world. Um, and then second to that would be your diet and physical activity habits. And then very small, small percentage of influence might come from supplements perhaps. Um, so it's really, you know, people... Uh, discount the the impact of the things that they can't control and then really overestimate what they actually can do, you know, by taking a supplement or something like that. So how can you openly increase, if we can say that, uh, or make more efficient our gut health? Um, based on what we know, quote unquote, so far, it looks like some of the best things that you can do to maintain, quote unquote, gut health would be to um, eat a wide diversity of plants. And that's not just vegetables, it's, it's fruits, vegetables, whole grains, um, legumes, getting uh, an abundance of different types of dietary fiber, because that fiber will really not be utilized by you as the host, it's going to pass through to your colon, and then it can be used by the bacteria there. And so that's going to help feed them so that they can um, grow and thrive and, and, and multiply. Um, and then aside from the dietary practices, maintaining uh, physical activity habits, but not overtraining because that can be a stressor to the immune system. Um, and then, you know, uh, sleeping, managing stress, uh, maintaining a healthy body weight. Uh, really, there's there's no like secret pill or anything like that, and it's not super sexy. It's just kind of the practical recommendations. There were three things you wanted to eliminate from any social media or any like like your gut, any three things that you want to eliminate. You like you push delete today on Google and you wouldn't see it again. Um, yeah, so I would say that uh, people blaming dysbiosis for the inability to lose weight would be one. Um, two, saying that you need to um, <laughs> saying that you need to uh, heal the gut or cure leaky gut or dysbiosis. Um, that's not a, a clinical diagnosis for one thing. And um, for another thing, since we don't have a specific profile of dysbiosis, it's not something that you can cure. Um, third, I would probably have to say the pushing of supplements, especially probiotics. I'm not anti-probiotic, but people think that everyone has to be taking a probiotic, and there is not a kitchen sink probiotic that works for everything for every person. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. James, yeah. recovery, nutrition. Recovery is a big thing. It's a big one. It covers a whole, yeah. So recovery, uh, we can look at it in a couple different ways, but usually we're looking at if you have a training session, recovery is basically the time in between the two training sessions when you train that same thing or you have another training session again. And the question is, can you present an overload stimulus in the subsequent training session, right? And so that encompasses all sorts of stuff. We actually have to look at the training. We have to look at the nutrition. We have to look at the lifestyle factors. So 
a lot of the times people wonder why Mike and I focus so much on the MRV, MEV, all these number stuff. And one of the things we learned is, yeah, there's a certain limit as to how much you can actually train and benefit from and certainly recover from. And so we look at things like, all right, how much are you doing per week, per session, per month? We look at, is your sleep good? Is your diet good? Are you managing your stressors well? Things that Gabby was just talking about. And we look at, are you doing that in the best way? Are you adjusting your lifestyle to accommodate the rigors of training in the most efficacious way? So that's usually what we look for. Is there a limitation, as you said, on the individual because of training, because oh, yeah. of genetics, because of nutrition, because of maybe pets? Oh, yeah. All of the above. So, you know, we know that every, every person's going to be different. We know that, like, for example, there's a reason why people gravitate towards, like, marathon running and triathlon versus bodybuilding simply because of genetic differences. They're good at certain activities, less good at others. So we know that sometimes people are gonna be more enduring or can take more training than others. We know that some people have better or worse diets than others or maybe more responsive to certain dietary conditions. And certainly if you have people who are uh, using special sports supplements or you know, anabolic drugs, they're gonna, their training's gonna look a lot different than somebody who's not using those things. And it's not a, like a right or wrong thing, but as like a coach and a practitioner, yeah, it's just something you should be aware of for sure. How can we optimally uh, increase our recovery? What are the, like, let's say the five pillars of six oh, whatever? Well, well, we got so much to talk about there. Yeah, so the big things are first we look at your training and we say, are you training within what Mike and I like to call your volume landmarks? That's the first choke point where we say, if you're not doing that, you're either uh, recoverability is not a limiting factor because you're not training enough, or you're training so much that you just cannot recover from it. So that's the first one. The next one, we look at things like sleep and lifestyle, where we say, are you getting enough sleep? Are you doing a good job relaxing? Are you managing your stressors? Things along those lines. And we can talk about all of those individually, but that's kind of the big one. Then we look at things like nutrition. Are you getting enough calories, macros, stuff like that? And then we move into things like active recovery methods, like deloading, taking light sessions, active rest periods. And then last and least are the fun, sexy ones that most people want to talk about. Most people are like, what do you think about sitting in the sauna? I saw Joe Rogan sits in the sauna all the time. What do you think about this and that? And it turns out those tend to be the least efficacious. Not to say that they're bad, they just don't do as much as like sleeping and eating well. Yeah. What do you think people should avoid? Because uh, Mike touched that on the presentation about um, load. Um, what would you think are the signs that you need to step back a bit and focus on recovery, as you said? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we usually recommend is we like to look at three things. So we like to look at the first one is performance. Is your performance really tanking? Not just like having kind of an off day. Is it dropping really substantially? So that's the first kind of red flag. Then we start to look at uh, physiological measures. So we can look at things like heart rate, like resting heart rate, heart rate variability. You can look at blood markers. It gets expensive. But some type of physiological measure is good. You can even use like a body weight. And then last, we like to use it, uh, psychological or perceptive measures. Are they reporting stress, anxiety, lack of sleep, mood disturbances? If you can hit one of each, you know something's probably a little bit off. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mike, I want to get big, hypertrophy. I watched your last uh, debates, one with uh, Lyle, and, <laughs> and um, the other one regarding um, low or high intensity, high volume, always like I've been in the industry now 20 years, that's the only thing I hear. I get that if you stress a muscle, you've got an adaptation, the muscle will follow, it's going to grow. It doesn't work like that. You always have a cap. Um, but let's say I want to get big. Hypertrophy. My fibular or sarcoplasmic, it's always a thing. 
what's the case? Uh, you can wrap it up. Yo, uh, uh, one, two, one, two. Yeah, you hear me, Pac? I'm out here, baby. We out on these streets. <laughs> so um, do you want me to address myofibrillar versus sarcoplasmic specifically or just talk about hypertrophy in relation to volume? Jeez. Oh, thanks so much. It's hard to follow up with these folks. I'm just like, if I can pair it anytime they talk. Um, so, you know, uh, probably one of the more important things about hypertrophy that James and I have been discussing for a while is how much training should you do if you want to optimize hypertrophy? And then from there, how much can you do? Granted, how much can you recover from? And that's been a really hot topic of debate for a really long time. And a lot of people are searching for these sort of mystical unicorns of optimality where they should just be considering it from a conceptual basis is, okay, the first thing we know for a fact is there's a minimum amount of training you have to do to grow anything. Like if you're already pretty well trained, you can't do like one set a week of squats and grow your quads. So we know that your minimum effective volume is more than one set per week. Through experimentation and good feedback, you can find out what your minimum effective volume is. And then, so what is the top end of that? So, okay, you, you can train there and grow minimally, or you can train more and grow more up until when. And for sure, the very top end is what was called your maximum recoverable volume, which is because you physically can't recover from more than that. How are you supposed to present an overload if the definition of recovery is you can no longer present an overload? Like... You squat 150 kilos for sets of 10 in one workout, but it's you do so many sets of 10 that the next workout you come back and you can only manage 145 kilos for sets of 10. Is that an overload? Yeah, still sort of. Maybe you grow some, but the next workout you're down to 140, like your performance is dropping. How long can you keep that volume up until you're just getting worse? Well, the answer is hopefully no longer than one session, and then you stop doing that and stop. Uh, so, And, and the, here's a huge critical thing your minimum effective volume and your maximum recoverable, training any amount of volume between those two is a good job. Finding where the optimal is, is like extra credit. And usually training from your minimum effective all the way to your maximum recoverable and deloading is a real good place to start. But here's the real critical factor. Those numbers are different for everybody. Your minimum effective volume might be someone else's maximum recoverable volume. And one thing we do know for a fact now is that very often what are called non-responders or low responders to training actually have minimum effective volumes that are higher than most of the MRVs of the studies they're exposed to. So in a study, they'll have a group of people that trains five sets a week and a group that trains 10 sets a week. And they'll have a bunch of people that won't grow from either one of them. What they've done in other studies is take that group of people and expose them to 15 and 20 sets and they finally start growing. So a lot of times it's they're just under training but they have no idea because they recover so quickly and their minimum effective volume is so low, I'm sorry, so high, they have to do a lot to grow, but they can recover from a lot and they just, no one else is like that, so they end up never training enough. That would be different to a novice. Person totally. So as you train more and more in your career, your minimum effective volume goes up. You take someone who's never trained before, they do one set of squats, they grow. Ronnie Coleman's not going to grow from a set of squats. Phil Heath is not going to grow. They need to do 10 sets, 20 sets, maybe even per workout to get any growth. Their minimum effective volume starts to get so high that their maximum recoverable volume starts to get really close. And actually, by definition, if your minimum effective volume caps or exceeds your MRV, you can't physically grow because the work it takes to stimulate growth mechanisms is more than you can recover from. One of the ways, people ask this question a lot, uh, 
people want the title of advanced athlete. They want, how do I know if I'm advanced? First of all, you don't want to be advanced because you want to grow like a beginner. But there's actually a good definition, a robust definition of advanced. Advanced can be seen, one of the definitions is your minimum effective volume is close enough to your maximum recoverable where if you're not on top of your recovery, like the stuff James says, you don't grow. Like, so if someone's doesn't get great sleep, goes to the club a lot in Greece, right? Clubbing their ass off. You guys pretty much invented partying. You know, in the United States, our idea of a party is like, what are the Greeks doing? I bet they're having more fun. So we go to Greece and we, we, we lose it. But you party a lot, you drink a lot, and you still grow. You're not advanced. You're clearly a beginner intermediate or just have such amazing genetics that you're a beginner intermediate for years. And people probably don't have a lot to learn from you. So that guy that drinks a shitload at the club and is still jacked, don't ask him for advice. How do you know when you're advanced? When unless and until you get eight hours of sleep a night, your calories are perfect, you cannot recover from the workouts you have to do to grow. That's how you know you're advanced. It's not the best place in the world to be, but hey, if you wanna make progress after getting, pushing your body to its limits, you have to focus on things like recovery because your MRV and your MEV start to get real close together. A lot of people will say, <clears throat> is it volume that doesn't make you grow or is it food? Yeah. So it's hard to... Well, you got to mix your food with the volume, so you have to lift food, like a lot of kilos of food. The weights have to be made of bread. Um, yeah, so that's a really great question. Uh, it depends on what your limiting factor is. If you are training above your minimum effective volume and you're not growing, then you probably need to eat more food because that could just be your limiting factor right there. On the other hand, if you are training an unbelievable amount, right, or if, you're, if your nutrition is perfect, but you're training either a fucking crazy amount and not growing, or you're not training much and not growing, you're probably missing your volume landmarks altogether. One thing James and I like to point out is some people, uh, this is something super, I don't know if it's clever, it's not a super wise thing that he says about recovery is sometimes recovery is actually not your limiting factor. Usually when we say the most important thing about recovery is your volume landmarks, James was too advanced for me. I was going to guess your MRV because that's how we put it in the book a lot of times is the most important thing is training under your MRV because if you're not doing that, who gives a shit if you're eating or sleeping? You're just training too much. But what he said was really brilliant. If you're training under your MEV, you don't even need recovery. Like there's powerlifters that do like three squats a week and they're like, I need to work on my recovery. From what? You don't even train. Triple your training volume, then you'll earn your sleep and your food. I remember seeing a diet by a powerlifting coach, no names, and he's like, the guys he coached did super low volume training, like literally three heavy squats a week. And he's like, powerlifters need lots of protein, about 350 grams a day. And I'm like, why? You could eat like 50 grams and it's all nervous system training at that point. It was just hilarious. So recovery and training isn't so much a balancing act, but both of them feed into each other. As long as you're between your MEV and your MRV and you apply food, et cetera, et cetera, you will grow. But figuring out those volume landmarks is a big deal. It takes time and it's always personal. So you can't be like, like I've literally had questions on Instagram. You know, people are trying. They're like, Dr. Mike, you said MRV is 20 sets. I never fucking said that. I said for a lot of people, 20 sets is where you start to look for maybe the MRV being a thing. But it's always personal. And some people say like, hey, I'm recovering and progressing from 30 sets of week of back training. Is that wrong? And I'm like, no, it's not wrong. You're doing great. Keep it up. And they're like, but it just seems like a lot. Like, 
yeah, James and I could tell you about like ways to make your training more efficient, uh, getting, you know, uh, you clean up your technique, all of a sudden your stimulus to fatigue ratio goes up and you have to do physically less sets to get the same thing out of it. Like people will do 10 sets of partial squats and the leg that gives you some growth, you do five sets of full squats for the first time, you're like, fuck, oh my God. So anytime, and James and I talk about this a lot, someone's like, I do 40 sets for back, but I don't grow from any less. We're like, what, what do you mean by back? What is, what is your idea of training? You know, you see them do like something and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, who knows? And regarding what you said about the, because that goes also for recovery, if you're doing really heavy days, every day with the same muscle group, your bones don't have the same um, recovery to become dense. And totally. With a lot of people with back pain, you see the great powerlifters, they train once every five days, just so biologically can give that foundation for the bones to be able to maintain it. Yeah. So the really sciencey way of putting that is your various tissues and systems have different recovery time courses. Muscles have one of the shortest time courses. The only thing that has a shorter time course than muscle is uh, technical ability. So like you can train for technique twice or three times in one day for 30 minutes at a time. Your nervous system recovers super fast. Like you do gymnastics flips in the AM, in the PM, and at night, and you're fine. Your muscles recover, gee, you know, every couple of days, if you really thrash them, they recover. Your connective tissues, your muscle fascia, your tendons, your ligaments, your bones in that order recover slower and slower and slower to at some point, you know, you have to, this is where active rest phases and things like that come in handy because like, yeah, you can keep pushing your muscle. Your joints are effing done. Um, and, and so managing recovery and managing training loads over the long term has to mean looking at various systems. So for example, uh, I'm doing uh, some training now and have been for a while where you do some heavier work for hypertrophy earlier in the week and some lighter work. And people are like, what's the advantage of the lighter work? And I'm like, well, you know, it's just diversity of stimuli and muscle fibers and all this stuff. That's one thing. The thing is like, could I get really good results if I did two heavy sessions? Yes. My muscles, that would be great but I wouldn't be able to recover on a uh, connective tissue basis, and after three weeks, I would just be a fucking wreck. Um, training, psychology, nutrition. A lot of people get to a point when they, I'm not gonna say when they go low carb, because somebody uh, down in New York is gonna be getting pissed. Broderick, that goes for you. Oh boy. I didn't say anything about carbs, okay? Um, they get stressed, they get angry. They're like, oh, why am I doing this? They rebound, they eat too much, oh, I'm gonna have a refeed day, I'm gonna have this, I'm gonna have that. What's going on? Like, what, what's the problem? There's um, something missing. Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, in terms of looking at sort of the psychology of dieting and, and really the psychology of, of weight management, because weight management isn't really just a, a nutrition thing, it is a behavioral thing, it's a thought process thing. So it's not just about um, telling a person, okay, eat this many macros, time them in this way. A lot of people know what they are supposed to do and what they should be eating. And what they really struggle with is adherence. And um, when someone does experience that, you know, I, I'm going to eat something and then, you know, I feel bad about it. Uh, we call that the abstinence violation effect. So that's when a person has sort of instilled um, either consciously or perhaps a little bit subconsciously specific rules about their lifestyle, and then they break one of those rules. They have feelings of anxiety and guilt and frustration, and that, exactly, and then that propels them forward. They have kind of this effort mentality. You know, I say, like, you drop one egg, you don't then throw all the rest of the eggs on 
the floor just because you dropped that one. But because people have sort of an all or nothing, zero or 100% mentality, they feel that they are on or off of a diet, that they don't give themselves an opportunity to practice maintenance habits. So diets should really, and this I credit um, Miguel Blackett from, from Revive Stronger for this. He, he posted a great uh, meme forever ago that diets should teach habits. And that's really um, how I go about working with clients is that it's, I'm helping you learn about food procurement, about the decisions that you're going to make, you know, when you're not in your safety bubble of your own kitchen, but, you know, like when traveling and things like that, um, or in social situations, helping them make the decisions that are best aligned with their goals, which I help them determine on their own. Because that's another thing is buy-in is so important. Like they have to understand why it is they're doing what they're doing. Exactly. And then identify with that and internalize it as, you know, I train a, cer a certain way. I, no one has to tell me to go to the gym because I power lift and that's part of my identity and I enjoy it. I'm intrinsically motivated to do it. When it comes to nutrition, like cutting and things like that, uh, diets kind of suck. I mean, and even if you're like, this is part of who I am because I'm a competitor and things like that, it's still a challenge. But when you take a person who is a recreational exerciser and you treat them as a coach in the same way as you treat, you know, the person who's doing a figure competition, then it's really kind of on you because you are not being the most effective coach for that person. You need to change your approach depending on that person's goals and their lifestyle. You don't give them a cookie cutter. Everyone gets these macros in this type of meal timing. And I think that's, yeah, exactly. I think that's part of the problem is that like people, yeah, people are, everyone's sort of receiving the same kind of like all or nothing, a hundred percent, you know, no excuses. And it's like, no, if you're, you know, Susan who does CrossFit three times a week and you have a family and things like that, CrossFit is not your whole life. And your coach, if they're trying to make it your whole life is kind of doing a crappy job, honestly. So I think it's, it's on us as, as the, um, uh, the represent the the representatives of the field to I think better um, communicate the ways in which we can all uh, pursue a healthy diet and exercise in ways that work for us and allow us to learn habits that will then allow us to maintain our weight loss success when it, you know exactly and have long term adherence yeah. That's excellent. One thing that's that's worked in the past for I'm not so sure if there's you cut me down if this is something wrong, but a lot of times like um, people come to the uh, diet with like a religious thing of like good versus evil. What I've done with tons of clients back when I used to coach people was to try to attack that early and say, listen, if you only eat Cheetos on top of pizza for the rest of your life, you're still a good person. All this is for fun. So anything better is just bonus points. So, so there's no like good food and bad food. There's fun food and then there's like food that's a little more concordant with your goal and a lot more concordant and then like bodybuilder flawlessness which costs you a lot of sanity which I think frees people up psychologically to be like okay I could have the slice of pizza and Cheetos and that's totally fine or I could eat like a machine and that's also totally fine I'm gonna have like ape slice of pizza but instead of Cheetos I'm gonna have a quest bar and I'm gonna be pretty fucking good and it's gonna be pretty cool isn't that like a better place to go? What do you think, Gabby? Is that like a totally stupid idea? Yeah. 
No, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the things that's really trendy right now is intuitive eating. And it's um, represented in a lot of different ways on Instagram. But if you actually look at, you know, what the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics puts out and you actually read the books that the initial dietitians wrote. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And we're not just, if we don't, yeah, we don't just keep parroting, you know, the other people's memes. You'll find that mindfulness is a huge aspect of IE. It's not just... Um, you know, people like, oh, I'm honoring my cravings. Well, yes, in, in that book, there is, there, it's very clear that we don't demonize foods. There's not a good food or a bad food. But at the same time, we have to be mindful about why it is we're choosing the foods that we're choosing. And if we find that, you know, our eating behaviors are just in, intrinsically linked to our stress and things like that, then perhaps we can use those cravings and those unplanned meals and that lack of, uh, you know, the, of, the, of control, we're feeling like we have a lack of control, is sort of, okay, that's a flag that, oh, something in my life might need to change. Perhaps I'm not managing my stress very well, and it is coming out in that way. And it's not just eat as much as you want of anything that you want and ignore all of the feelings. You, you have to process the feelings. And in time, yeah, you can start to decide like, oh, I'm gonna have the piece of pizza with some vegetables instead because I think that that's like really good for my body and good for my goals and that's okay. And that you have the agency to also say like, hey, you know what, I actually don't wanna have that pizza even though you want me to eat this pizza and it seems like the social thing to do. I actually don't want to do that. I would rather eat something different you know, that I feel, yeah, exactly. So um, I think that that's, and that is what I try to go for with my clients too, is that there's not a good or bad food. It's just, in the book, they call it a play food. So it's a fun food, you know, it's a fun food or a play food, and then food that's a little bit more functional and that you find the balance for yourself in terms of the, the play food plus the functional food that helps you to meet your goals in a really sustainable way. Because, you know, the, the actual cutting part, like the actual calorie deficit, that's not supposed to be a forever lifestyle, oh, yeah. you know. But the habits there, the, the food choices probably look kind of the same, but, like, the food volume goes up and down like a knob but it's not like we're on our diet and then off our diet and then the wheels come off and we're like forever gaining and losing the same 10 pounds. That's a good segue that for what you, sorry for interrupting, um, don't punch me, um, <laughs> that you said there's the pro and a lot of people go through that, oh, Instagram, do you see what Phil Heath did? I'm like, dude, that's his lifestyle. That's, he, he makes all money, he that's all he yes. does. Then you've got the Instagram uh, influencer. Can we use that term? Yeah. 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 That actually says whatever he wants and he sells whatever he wants, which is bullshit. Mm -hmm. That's what he does. You've got people that do it because uh, they enjoy it. So can you can you put that in context? Like, yeah. So first of all, if I were to honor my my food cravings, I would have blown through a couple livers by now. Um, yeah, so like ultimately like what we're trying to illustrate is this just a very simple idea, which is trade-offs, right? All the choices that you make, whether they're training or nutrition, come out of some kind of trade-off. Now, in some cases, like if you are somebody who is trying to reach the highest level of sport, and this is true for physique sport and any other sport, you are going to have to make sacrifices. You are going to have to yeah. give things up at some point, and it's going to come at the cost of your lifestyle, some of your happiness, maybe relationships with friends and family, all those things, right? So what we're saying is, yes, if you want to get the absolute best results for this whatever endeavor that you're doing, you're going to have to be pretty strict. But the idea is that not everyone's trying to be the best, and it's okay not to be the best. It's okay to just want to be like a fit, 
healthy person, and it's okay to not be 100% on all the time. There, it, it's, what we try to recommend is like, yeah, there are some times throughout your life when things are good, when things are stable, like you're not traveling, you don't have crazy things going on. If you want to do a cut diet, now's the time. Go hard. Do a good job. If you have other shit going on, like you have family stuff that you have to take care of, if, yeah, prioritize. If, you, uh, or if your job situation is rocky, if you have to travel a whole bunch, don't diet. Just make really good habits, make really good lifestyle, and don't think that you can do what like a professional-level bodybuilder is doing while you're juggling all these other things. It's just unreasonable. So understand trade-offs, understand priorities, and make good decisions from there. Perfect. Three things you want to eliminate, like for, do, for Gabrielle. Ooh, so the thing is, like, the, the bad stuff that's out there helps make me money. So I want to keep them around. Uh, I, one thing that drives me nuts is uh, adrenal fatigue. I would like to see that go. And we had a great scientific article that said it doesn't exist, and it still is lingering around. That drives me nuts. The, I could pass on, like, some of the sauna stuff is, like, resurging a little bit. There's, yeah, there's a, there's a time and place for that, but it's just getting so much hype blown out of proportion. Those are probably the two that I can think of the most. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, oh, car oh car cardio is recovery. I don't know how this has, I don't know how it came and how it stuck around. So there's this note, I think I understand it now. There's this uh, kind of this idea that like doing cardio uh, is good uh, for enhancing recovery from like really hard training. And there's something to be said about having a strong cardiovascular base, like being cardiovascularly fit. That actually can help you to some extent. But the notion of like, okay, I did a hard leg session. Now let's go run, right? Does that work? Man, it does the opposite. It adds fatigue. It doesn't take fatigue away. There's nothing there. I think people just confuse that with what we would call taking a light session where you maybe do some light walking or some cycling or, yeah, or swimming, something like that, active recovery. Who knows? Yeah, like, well, if we're going to walk, we might as well sprint. Mm -hmm. Get 100%. <laughs> Dr. Mike, three things you want to eliminate. Please don't say ice cream. Gee, the all or nothing mentality definitely has to go because uh, it just doesn't reflect what real life looks like. And it just leads people down a lot of either not starting fitness at all because it seems overwhelming or starting fitness and burning out or dedicating way too much time to fitness where they could have had a really good time doing anything but. Um, the idea of taking one study and using it to support anything, I would love to see go because the worst thing ever. It's just not science. Science does not work like that. Yeah, one study on PubMed, that's it. It's really bad, and a lot of people who are public science influencers uh, just trump one study and just say, well, this is what you have to do. Um, and uh, in general, I got three things I gotta be against. Man, um, the viewing of what the best athletes do as the optimal that is, that is possible. Because it's a comical thing to think, well, well, these guys do it and they're the best, so it's gotta work. Or they could be doing something better and being even better. In the 19th, this is a great analogy. I don't know how much it will re re resonate with a, with a Greek audience, but in American football, the current position of offensive lineman has an average body weight of, of roughly 150 kilos. These are the best pros in the world. Um, in 1960s, the biggest offensive linemen were roughly 100 kilos, and they didn't lift weights. So in the 1960s, they had already been playing professional football in the United States for over 60 years at that point, longer, 80 years. And can you imagine telling a sport that's 80 years old 
You'd be like, all of your linemen are 50 kilos underweight and they don't train with weights. They'd be like, these are the best guys in the world. They play in the professional National Football League. You think you know better than them? And if you were from the future, you're like, yeah, yeah I do. Have these guys do squats, deadlifts, and push presses and they'll be animals and monsters. And, and nowadays, if you are 100 kilos and you try to be a lineman, people laugh at you unless you're in middle school. That's a good middle school lineman. Is like, if you're in high school and you weigh 100 kilos, you're not a lineman anymore. You're something else. So it's just one of these things where people say, well, the best do it is good consideration. It should leave us with pause and think, man, maybe they're onto something, but maybe they're not. So everything is converging lines of evidence, multiple studies, what the best people do, all the stuff together gives us a decent picture of what's going on. And maybe not even a complete picture, but any one of those things by itself, not a good idea to run on. Short thing about your coach. I don't have a coach. There's this guy named Broderick Chavez that's, is, he's a name whispered in the wind. Um, yeah, Broderick's the man. He's the man, the ultimate expert at you know what. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Well, what's Renaissance Prioritization? What is it? Well, who knows? Yeah. When you guys first came out, I just got the books and then I got the new one of the principles, mm -hmm. which is the Bible. It's a hard book. It's like super training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, an, it was an intentionally written to be hard. Uh, we just finished the rough draft of the scientific principles of hypertrophy training. That'll be out in a year. Um, so Renaissance Periodization is a company that is basically founded on everything we just talked about. Uh, we, Nick Shaw and I started the company out of a pure, vile hatred of pseudoscience. <laughs> and uh, people out there are ready to give their money and their time, their commitment to try to get fit. And we're going to use the tools of science, logic, reason, and just being just upfront and normal with people to try to get them as much help as they need. And the way we do this is we publish a lot of free articles. We do tons of podcasts all the time, free interviews. And then up the next price tier, we have books, which is you can build all of your own diets and do all of your training by books that we've written. The next tier up from that is we have apps, like we have the RP Diet app, which can build you and modify and coach you from your, your pocket for 15 bucks a month, which is really sweet. Up the next level, we have templates that do a little bit more long-term planning for you, specifically with training. And then after that, we have various tiers of coaching, you can hire one of these folks. I don't coach anymore because they don't let me work with humans uh, after the accident. It was an incident, really. I was experimenting. So uh, the person's alive in the technical sense, wherever dimension we teleported them to. So um, you can work with folks like this on a personal one-on-one -on -one coaching basis uh, to have someone to a truly expert in their field guide you and optimize your stuff. So no matter who you are, where you're going with your fitness, or how much resource you have access to, RP's got something for you. And our only policy is science-based, logical, no BS. We're not trying to rip you off. There's tons of other people doing that. We're just trying to cut you the real deal. Yeah, that's it. I'm going to see you guys in Greece for a seminar? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah? Maybe if the United States government lets me travel. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. Yes. Yes. Greece. And then, I can't remember the word now. Nere malaka. Nere malaka. Guys, thank you so much for your time. And I'll see you in Greece soon, huh? Thanks right. for having us. Thank, thank you very you. much. So much thank you. Excited. Mm -hmm.